It was a gleaming, golden game cartridge unlike any we'd ever seen. Within it, a game unlike any we'd ever played. You're about to hear not just the story of that game, but our story, our legend of The Legend of Zelda. And this is McQuaid Arcade. Welcome to episode four of the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. We're talking games, movies, tech, toys, and all things 80s. My name's Barney. And I'm Biggs. And we, uh, look, I know they're all special. I know every episode is special, but this one I feel like is extra special because we're talking about something that, and Biggs, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but in terms of formative media experiences, things that we experienced together at a young age that shaped us and really has stuck with us throughout our lives... I feel like this is it. This is the biggie, right? This is the bedrock. No doubt about it. Talking about The Legend of Zelda. Not just The Legend of Zelda, the game, the series, but our story with it, our adventure with it. The legend of The Legend of Zelda. Before we get into our story, our experience with The Legend of Zelda, I thought we should talk a little bit about the background of the game itself. It was first released in Japan in 1986 as a launch title for the Famicom disk system, the family computer disk system. The Famicom, of course, was the Japanese version of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Development started a couple years earlier in 1984. The game was actually developed concurrently with the original Super Mario Brothers by legendary game designer Shigeru Miyamoto and his team. It's fascinating that these games, which are so very different, were developed side by side. Super Mario Brothers, of course, very linear, score-based, level-based, but Zelda was this big, wide, open world that encouraged exploration. It was largely very non-linear. Miyamoto drew upon experiences as a child, exploring with his friends, the discovery of uh, a cave near his home, exploring rivers and woods and neighborhood gardens. There's this wonderful quote that I found in The New Yorker by Miyamoto. It's a quote about the world of Hyrule that The Legend of Zelda takes place in. Hyrule, he once said, is a miniature garden that you can put into a drawer and revisit any time you like. How beautiful is that? It's just perfect. It encapsulates that feeling so perfectly. The Legend of Zelda was released here in North America for the Nintendo Entertainment System on August 22nd, 1987. We were there. We were there, baby. We were there. In fact, I would be willing to bet that we got the game pretty damn close to its actual release date. Uh, I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was hot. I remember the day... My mom took me to Toys R Us to pick out a new Nintendo game, a new Nintendo tape, as our parents called them Nintendo tapes back then. (laughs) And uh, number two, I say that because back then we were at Toys R Us on what must have been a near weekly basis. We were constantly riding our bikes there on the weekends just to, I don't know, to walk up and down the aisles, check out all the games. And this game was not there the last time I'd been to Toys R Us, which was obviously recently. Uh, No more than a week before, because again, we were there just constantly. So this time, I walk into the video game aisle, and right there, standing out from everything else, is a gold box. It was a gold box with a little cutout on it, and in this little cutout window, you could see the cartridge in the box itself was gold. Shiny, beautiful gold, not regular gray, like every other Nintendo game ever made. This was gold. And 
my mom reacted like it had better be made out of real gold because the price was $39.99. Shocking. Shocking, dude. I mean, it was so much more expensive than any other game that had come out up to that point. And as with every new game that we discovered at the store, I knew nothing about it. Well, I knew one thing. I knew that if I didn't play this magical golden game that appeared from out of nowhere, I would die. I would simply die. And I informed my mother of this and she she uh, shelled out the 40 bucks. So I get the game home. And can I just can I just stop you there for one second? Because for the younger listeners, this is completely foreign. The idea that you would go to the toy store and look around blindly and see something totally new, the feeling of just discovery, and then the complete wild card. You didn't know if you were going to get a dud, if you were going to get the greatest game of all time, and you ran home and you put it in because we didn't have any magazines, let alone the internet, of course. But, you know, Nintendo Fun Club didn't even start until December of 1987. So you were completely flying blind, and that was part of the magic, right? Absolutely. It was part of the thrill of getting a new game, the the mystery. We had nothing to go on with the box. If the box was cool, you bought the game. And when the box is a magical looking gold one, uh, you definitely bought the game. And within minutes of getting this game home and popping it in, we knew that we had something on something special on our hands here. We knew that this was going to be a game that was unlike anything that we had played up until that point. This was really something special, something different. And I feel like it was kind of the answer to our dreams. We always wanted a game that we could get into that had some lore, that had some mythology. And here it was, you know, served up on a golden platter, as it were, just truly changed everything. It absolutely did. It certainly changed the way that we played games together. I mean, we literally played this game together over the phone. We were lucky enough to have, as little kids, both TVs with Nintendos attached to them and our own phone lines in our room. And we would play this game together late at night. Our parents definitely thought we were asleep. Um, We'd play together over the phone late at night. And it was a cool, it was almost an early version of like an online co-op experience, right? We would say, all right, let's turn left here. And oh, what's over there? And what's, you know, and we would stick together. And, And playing the game together in this way, this shared experience, but just made it all the more magical. And it didn't just, you know, change the way that we played games. It was challenging in a way that I don't think we'd experienced in a game before. There was a lot to figure out. There were puzzles, the map. Sometimes it was hard to figure out where to go. You know, it came with a map. We'll talk more about this later. But it came with a map that, I mean, the map wasn't complete. You had to kind of map things out on your own. And when things got hard, we decided to enlist a little help. Nintendo had a game counselor hotline, a number you could call to talk to official Nintendo game counselors who would help you out with questions with games. And it was a toll-free number you can call. And that number, of course, was... 1-800-422-2602. How many years later, and I still have it memorized, it literally comes to mind instantly. Dude, I don't know your phone number. Like, (laughs) (laughs) if you offered me a suitcase full of money to get even remotely close to your phone number, uh, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. And yet, 1-800-422-2602, as you said, just comes up instantly. So obviously, we called this number a lot because we could still remember it. Uh, we did a lot of three-way calls so we could talk to the game counselors together. There was uh, our man, JC. He was the guy. He was usually the guy, I feel like, answering the phone. And if he didn't, we asked for him. We like built up a rapport with this guy. And we had uh, you know our late-night game sessions. And of course, the game counselor, it wasn't a 24-hour thing. 
it was closed at night when we would play the game a lot. So we would have to call the next day and we couldn't wait until we got home from school. We went to a very small private Catholic school all the way from kindergarten through eighth grade, right outside the cafeteria. There was a payphone in the hallway, like the stairway outside the, uh, the cafeteria. And we would sneak away from the table, which I don't really know how we manage it because it's not like there was, you know, a thousand kids there. It was a pretty small group of kids. And we snuck away to the payphone. And because it was toll free, we could call JC during the day and uh, hit him with our questions. It, and to put it in perspective, you know, when we were playing this game, it was incredibly difficult and incredibly mysterious. There were all sorts of weird, you know, partial clues or pseudo clues that we couldn't make any sense of there. The dungeons themselves were really complicated. I was trying to map them. You know, some of the kids were really smart and could do these beautiful maps. My maps were terrible. You'd get confused. You'd forget to write something down. You'd get frustrated. You'd be so far from the start screen and then you'd die. You know, some, some Octorok would just hit you one too many times and you're starting back. So it was really, really kind of shrouded in mystery and therefore you needed some outlet. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have a magazine. You didn't have a wiki or a guide to take you through. So we could call this number. And even that was kind of amazing because that was another level of mystery. The entire cafeteria was like, who are these guys calling? Are they drug dealers? What are they doing? <laughs> we were calling Libyan terrorists. We were selling plutonium to Libyan terrorists because that That's was a big right. thing people did back in the 80s. That's maybe what we were doing some of the time. So that's a good, I think that's a good recap of our experience discovering and first playing Zelda. Let's, uh, let's talk about the game itself. So from the moment you hit the power button and turn the game on for the first time, you are hit with something epic. Before you even get into the game itself, you have this very dramatic title screen with a waterfall and a big title splash. And the music that you hear is this orchestral, again, very epic feeling music that sounded way more impressive than just about anything we had heard on the NES up until that point. The bright, colorful, sunny waterfall scene then transitions to nighttime and the music fades out and kicks back up with this almost Star Wars-like scroll of the story and you're introduced to some of the weapons and items you're going to be collecting, some of the monsters you're going to be facing, and this all just does an amazing job of setting up the game. So the game starts and you're just, you just appear, you're just standing in this space and you sort of don't know anything. There's no tutorial. There's not a practice round. There really, there's no cutscene that sort of sets the tone. You're just there and the music is playing and you walk into that, that first little cave and there he is, the old man telling you, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this. It was cryptic. It was interesting. To me, it looked like a wooden sword. Apparently it was a rusty sword, but it looked kind of like a wooden sword. And you knew the adventure had begun. But now the question was where to go. One of the things that you mentioned that made you feel like the adventure really had, in fact, begun was the music. That overworld theme did such a fantastic job of setting the scene and making you feel like, okay, this is it. We're about to embark on something amazing. So you exit that first cave, sword in hand, rusty wooden sword in hand. And yeah, exactly. It's like, 
where do I go? And as we started to explore the overworld, we were blown away. For the first time, a game felt like a world. Totally. I mean, it was so much bigger than anything we'd ever imagined. And then, of course, the overworld map didn't even take into account the dungeons because those are also huge. So those are sort of superimposed on a second level and the dungeons have multiple levels. So it's really amazing. Yeah, we're blown away by this huge overworld map. And then we enter our first dungeon and everything changes to the point where it really almost feels like a different game all of a sudden. You go from the bright, sunny overworld with these wide open spaces and inspirational adventure music to this dark, claustrophobic underground space, and the shift in music fits that change perfectly. So the map, the physical paper map that came with the game, had the layout and location of the first, I believe it was the first two dungeons. But after that, I mean, you were on your own when it came to even finding the dungeons, let alone finding your way through them. And isn't that crazy? Yeah, you didn't you didn't actually even know where to look for the dungeons. All you could see on the overworld map were some little potential holes, you know, these little doorways. And of course, some of the, the dungeons and some of the, the doorways were hidden. You had to push things, burn things, or bomb things, which really, I remember some of the times you'd find something accidentally and you'd think, how in the heck would I have found this otherwise? You know, like how, how could you possibly know where this was? Um, and that is frankly part of what we were talking about when we were calling one 800 calling the hotline and asking them, you know, what do you guys think? Where are you at? And it makes me think about the counselor we kind of befriended, who was probably 10 years our senior, JC. And this guy we would talk to, we'd ask for him and they, it was so cute. It was such a small office. They'd put him on They'd say, okay, hold on. And someone would put him on and we'd say, you know, where are you at? What are you doing? And, and right. And, and this, maybe, maybe I've misremembering or, or sort of aggrandized uh, it in my mind, but I swear for a brief moment, we asked him a question. He said, you guys, you're actually ahead of me. Is that true? You know, I don't remember that happening with Zelda. It definitely did happen though. It happened with the game Strider for the NES. Yes. We were over at your house. We were at the end of the game trying to beat the last boss and we just couldn't. So we reached out to our boy JC and uh, he said nobody there had been able to beat him yet. So he had, he uh, couldn't help us. So we kept trying and we beat him and we called JC back to uh, gloat about it, about how we, <laughs> we beat him before the, uh, the pros did. That was a great game. That's another example of one of those arcade games that the NES couldn't really do justice to, technically speaking. So they changed it up and made it more of a uh, adventure game. Anyway, speaking of bosses, when you were in a dungeon and you got close to the boss's room in the dungeon, I'll never forget the first time we heard it. There's this um, really creepy, like, roaring, breathing noise. It was terrible. It was, dude. It was scary. You know, the dungeons were already a, a scary place with the change in atmosphere and the you know, constantly coming up against new enemies that you hadn't seen up on the surface, hard enemies. But yeah, that, that sound when you got close to the boss and the bosses themselves in this game, Zelda really laid the groundwork for this tradition of having really good, really memorable boss encounters, right? Each boss has its own sort of strategy. And sometimes there were clues on how to beat the boss. And like the rest of the stuff you would read in the game, it was, they were kind of cryptic. Like in the, the second dungeon of the game, at one point you come across our friend, the old man, and he simply says, Dodongo dislikes smoke. 
And you're like, okay, well, number one, what's a Dodongo and why doesn't it like smoke? And you come to realize that Dodongo is the boss of the dungeon. He's like this triceratops looking dinosaur. And you realize that you have to feed him bombs. So you have to place the bombs in a certain way. He's impervious to everything else. He's got this this thick armored shell and you have to place the bombs in just the right way with just the right timing so that he swallows them and they go off. Inside his belly, it's a cute little animation. He kind of blows up, smoke comes out, and that's how you figure out how to beat the boss. And this was actually the precursor in a lot of ways to something very Nintendo-ish and frankly very Zelda-ish that you would have to find the secret to beating a boss. And before that, I mean, again, I don't know. We We were pretty young when this first came into our lives, but I think about the game The Quest for the Rings, which came out for the Magnavox Odyssey 2, which was the system that really was our first system in the house. Um, I think even before the Atari 2600 or right around the same time. And that was a a kind of a quest game where there was some adventure RPG stuff, but it was so crude, so simple. I mean, it almost felt like you were playing with a word processor and you were just moving, moving the uh, cursor with a space bar. I mean, it was just the crudest thing. And here we are having to solve these little puzzles about how to beat an enemy, not just, you know, wailing at wailing on them with your sword. You actually had to figure out what to do. That in itself was a revelation of sorts. Totally. Before this game, I feel like boss battles were largely just pattern recognition and pure action, right? You avoid taking damage while inflicting enough damage on the boss, you were going to beat it. But now we needed very specific strategies and clues as to what those strategies were, were left. Um, Sometimes they were so cryptic though. And looking back, it's hard to know for sure if they were intentionally cryptic or like so many other early Japanese NES games, it was really just a, a translation issue. Which is a great segue to a wonderful book that I absolutely love and highly recommend called The History of Hyrule. And this is a book um, that its subtitle is Legends of Localization, and it is absolutely fantastic. It was published in 2015 by Clyde Mandolin, and it's one of the neatest things. This guy um, does some, some video game um, translations and localization, right? Cause it's more complex than just translating the words. When you localize a video game, you take some of the concepts, the ideas, some of the ways people are speaking and you try to convey the same things, you know, c- get, get the message across in the deepest way. So it's, it's sort of like an interpreter versus a translator. This is even one level further localizer. And there are some really wonderful little, um, anecdotes in this book. One of the ones is there's an old man who says in the American edition, Eastmost Peninsula is the secret. And, you know, he says, well, what does this even mean? I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I remember that. I have no idea what that meant. I don't think I ever solved it. And it turns out that if you look at the map, the overworld map, and you go all the way east, there's like a little peninsula there. And actually, that's where the money-making game is. So maybe that's what they were getting at. But in Japanese, it actually doesn't say that at all. In Japanese, the clue is, quote, you can use arrows. You can't use arrows if you run out of money. And that's really important because that tip tells you that, you know, whenever you fire an arrow, you use some of your money and you actually find the bow in that same dungeon. So, so it's really an important tip. That's, that's really quite topical, but it's not clear why they changed it. So there are a whole bunch of little anecdotes like that. And you realize that some of it was truly lost in translation. A second piece of Zelda memorabilia that I have and love is really something special. It is sitting on the wall behind me and it is an enormous eight feet by nearly three feet 
wall mural. It's like a tapestry that has the entire Legend of Zelda overworld map printed on this fabric. And it is just this incredible piece that's up on the wall on this beautiful kind of a silky, like a synthetic silk fabric. And what I love about it is I got it for something like $35 or $40 on eBay. Probably was not a <clears throat> piece of uh, actual official merchandise from Nintendo. So not uh, necessarily what one would call an officially licensed Nintendo product. Is that what we're saying here? Yeah, Maybe not. We're not exactly sure on that. There's uh, historians are continuing to debate that to this day. But uh, what's remarkable, it was about $40 for this beautiful tapestry. And then to get it framed, I was all excited. I'm like, oh my gosh. First, I like hung it up with like sticky tack or tape. And it was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. So I'm like, I got to get it framed. So I got it framed. And it was like $250 to get it framed. But it's stunning. It's this beautiful, beautiful piece. And I have it up uh, in my office and it's just absolutely wonderful. And it really is, you know, pixel perfect map that we lived in for all those months as we played. Yeah, that map is just amazing. I love I love looking at it whenever I come over. The only real piece of memorabilia I have is a little uh, ornament. It is a Christmas ornament made by Hallmark, officially licensed by Nintendo. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little Link ornament and it's based on the artwork that I love that's on the fold-out map that came with the original game. And if you push a little button here, I apologize, listeners, if this is uh, obnoxiously loud, but here we go. Plays the uh, title screen theme in all of its tinny little Christmas ornament speaker glory. Um, so yeah, it's real cute. I love it. It's a nice little nice little uh, piece. I've never actually put it on a Christmas tree. I just have it on my shelf in my office. Let's uh, let's talk about the marketing for this game. There are two commercials that I remember for the original Legend of Zelda. One was a couple of uh, cool 80s kids sitting around looking at the game in a, in a magazine or something, um, talking about how they'd like to get their hands on those graphics or something dumb like that. <laughs> and uh, the commercial culminates in them performing a Zelda rap, which is, well, it's about as, as cool as you would imagine. It's the Legend of Zelda, and it's really rad. Those creatures from Ganon are pretty bad. Octoroks and Tektaks levers, too. But with your help, our hero pulls through. Yeah, go, Link. Yeah, get Zelda. Wiki, wiki, wick. Wiki, wiki, wick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the other commercial, while not quite as cool as that one, was just weird. It was this guy dressed in all black, like a black turtleneck. It makes me think of what... um. What was that Saturday Night Live bit that Mike Myers would do where he was on like a German like dance show? It was really Sprockets. Weird. Dieter from Sprockets. Now is the time on Sprockets where we dance. <laughs> Sprockets. Yes, totally. Um, it was just weird. This this guy dressed in all black is just running around screaming the name Zelda over and over. It was bizarre. It was, it was frankly disturbing, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was very strange. Look, it was the 80s. Maybe uh, there was a lot of cocaine involved in the creation of the ad campaign. I don't know, but it was a very strange choice. Um, so the marketing was weird for this game. I feel like they would be, they would have been much better served just saying, look, we have this giant new adventure game. Unlike anything else, it's got a battery so you can save your progress. The first game with a battery. Um, but I guess batteries aren't as exciting as rapping nerds and <laughs> turtlenecked weirdos. Look, we're talking about it, aren't we? We're talking about the, uh, the ads to this day. So who's laughing now? Um, there was the cartoon. There was a Zelda cartoon that we loved. I think it was part of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I may be wrong. It may have just aired alongside of it. It clearly 
drew inspiration directly from the game in terms of the tone and even the dialogue, including <laughs> including um, the traditional Japanese saying that I'm sure you can I find- I totally know where you're going with this, by the way. I know exactly where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you could find information about it in your uh, Legends of, of Localization book because um, they use Link's signature catchphrase, translated, of course, from, from the formal Japanese- and that is, well, excuse me, princess. <laughs> that, was, that was what they went with. That was the catchphrase they went with. Because the kids, you know, the kids playing the video games these days, they love a good uh, Steve Martin ripoff. Wasn't that his thing? <laughs> That's right. Well, excuse That's right. me. Uh, very strange choice. But they did it. They went with it. They committed to it. They fit it in every episode. It's like, uh, it's like Garfield the movie starring Bill Murray of the Zelda franchise. <laughs> Boom. Nailed it. And there it is. For those of you taking notes, that's uh, that's the reference for this week. I have just vague memories of it. I don't remember it quite so uh, so fondly. I remember it being kind of unwatchable. But uh, <laughs> how dare you? But that that particular scene and that line stands out. I feel like it's been parodied in other places too because it was just just ridiculous. Let's uh, let's talk about just a few of the many many sequels that Zelda would go on to spawn over the following few decades. The first of which was also on the NES, came out in 1988 here in the uh, United States. Zelda II, The Adventure of Link. And this game was, by design, fundamentally and just radically different from the original Zelda. So much so that even though we eagerly anticipated it, once we finally got our hands on it, it was just confusing. All of a sudden... We were side-scrolling and platforming, and there were experience points. It was absolutely nothing like the game that we knew and loved. Now, I have since revisited Zelda 2 in my adult life, and it's actually an excellent game. And I'm pretty convinced that, had it been released under a different name, if it hadn't been a sequel to Zelda, we would have loved it. But at the time, it was just not at all what we expected or wanted, and we were just not feeling it. This was off-putting, right? I remember putting it in so excited, ready to kind of get back into that world and being like, this is nothing like Zelda. This is something totally different. It's funny because we we had other sequels that were coming out around that time of beloved, you know, properties. And if we think about Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest, which was also a little bit of a weird game and a bit of a departure from the original Castlevania with, again, some of these obscure and, and very difficult to, to understand clues. Um, but it's right, but it still felt much more like a Castlevania game. So even though there were some weird aspects to it, Zelda 2 was a really a radical departure in every single way from the original game. And it, to me, it just didn't feel like the same series. So I, I rejected it immediately. I was like, this is not something I'm going to play. Simon's quest is a great sort of counterpoint to Zelda two, because they took a game and they added to it and enhanced it and changed it. But at its core, it still felt like Castlevania. Hell, even Super Mario Brothers 2, which wasn't even really a Mario game. They took another game and slapped a coat of Mario paint on it and released that here in the United States as Super Mario Brothers 2. That felt more like Super Mario Brothers than Zelda 2 felt like Zelda. The next game in the series, which was A Link to the Past, came out in 91 for the Super Nintendo, returned back to the series roots, and it was just an absolutely gorgeous game. It still is to this day. The graphics were stunning. You know, there were those crystal clear, cartoony, 
uh, crisp 16-bit graphics and the whole light world and dark world juxtaposition was fun and interesting and novel. And this, to me, felt like a Zelda again. I felt like we were back. Two years later on the Game Boy, we had Link's Awakening, and this was the first example of Nintendo getting a little crazy with Zelda, doing some weird stuff. I absolutely love this game. I have yet to play the remaster for the Switch, which you played through and loved. Absolutely wonderful. And such a cool experience to be able to play this remastered game uh, on this new modern console with now incredibly bright, you know, vivid colors and beautiful control. I, I loved it. I got kind of lost in it in the most wonderful way. Fast forward five years to 1998, and we have a game that sits atop so many greatest game of all time lists and that's Ocarina of Time for the Nintendo 64. Like they had with Super Mario 64 a couple years before at the N64's launch, this was Nintendo taking one of their classic series and translating it from 2D to 3D so perfectly, retaining everything that made this game special and making a a seamless jump to three-dimensional gameplay. I mean, Nintendo in general has had this preternatural ability to make control mechanics and schemes that are just so instantly understandable. And that jump to 3D, I feel like it took years and years and years for everyone else to catch up to how smooth it was. And I mean, we still talk about that original Super Mario in in 3D, how it, it felt so freeing and so open. And Ocarina was similar. They just nailed it. And I don't know how they do it. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of genius there that is difficult to convey to get everything feeling just right. Nintendo followed up Ocarina of Time two years later in 2000 on the N64 in such a cool uncharacteristically risky way. I say risky because this game could have, and did at the time, turn off some fans. Ocarina of Time was this grand, sweeping, sort of traditional Zelda adventure, but Majora's Mask was a smaller game. It was dark. It was kind of creepy. Um, Link finds himself in this sort of trapped in this parallel world where he has three days to stop the moon from crashing down into the world and destroying it. The moon has this creepy, sinister kind of face, and the overall vibe of the game is just dark, and you have three in-game days to figure out the correct sequence of events to stop the world from being destroyed. And if you don't, uh, everything just sort of starts over, and you're back at the beginning of, of day one, Groundhog Day style. It is a fantastic game, critically acclaimed at the time, but pretty divisive, 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 among fans, because it was just so different. But that's one of the reasons why I loved it so much. The next console installment we would see uh, from the series was 2002's The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker on the GameCube. Wind Waker spoke to me so much, and I, I give them so many props for completely reimagining what the world of Zelda would look like with this incredible cartoony, maybe not quite cell shaded, but cell shade esque, right? Cell shaded esque uh, appearance to everything, super smooth mechanic. And then all of these wonderful new additions where you could get on a boat and kind of sail all over the place. You had this wonderful set of characters that were cartoony and funny. The guards would do these. I mean, it felt like a living cartoon. They would do these silly movements and they had the, the soundtrack was incredibly dynamic. As you were sneaking up on somebody, you'd hear it kind of do these little tiny tense moments. And then if you got caught, it would explode on you. So I, I just loved everything about it. And I, to me, Wind Waker ends up being my third favorite Zelda game. 
I will never forget seeing the very first announcement trailer for Wind Waker. I saw it on IGN. I actually just went back and rewatched it before recording this. And to this day, it looks so amazing. The first time I saw it, my wife was in grad school. My then girlfriend, now wife, was in grad school. And I was visiting her. And she was in the computer lab at her school doing some stuff. And I, of course, was browsing game sites, taking advantage of the sweet T1 line they were running. Wow. Right? That's faster than a 56K modem. Hard to believe, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm watching this trailer and the original overworld theme from The Legend of Zelda is playing. And I, I'm watching a cartoon. It looks like... And look... We had had cel-shaded, cartoony-looking games before, right? And they look great. Jet Set Radio, a couple years ago on the Dreamcast, absolutely blew everyone's mind. It was the first video game I ever imported. I went to a game store, I had my Dreamcast modded, and I got a Japanese copy of Jet Set Radio because I was so blown away by how it looked. But this was, in typical Nintendo fashion, just on a different level than what everybody else was doing. It was so beautiful. Like you said, the guards, when they went over a a precipice and they did this cartoony little thing where their legs went in the air before they fell, just like they did in Link to the Past, I was like, this, this is Zelda fully realized. Like, this is Nintendo having the technology at their disposal to really bring Shigeru Miyamoto's vision to life in a way that they couldn't before. Remember when, before the Star Wars prequels came out, George Lucas redid the original Star Wars movies and released them as the special editions. And he said, you know, we finally have the technology now where I can bring my original vision to life. But it turns out that meant just cramming as many dumb space dinosaurs into every single frame of all three movies that he could. This was like that, except not gross. And I had such a strong emotional response to this trailer that I got choked up. Dude, I may have actually been crying. In my head, when I think about this moment, when I look back at this, I have a single tear rolling down my cheek. And my wife, you know, notices, she turned around and she sees me. She's like, oh my God, are you okay? And then she looks at the screen and there's, you know, a little cartoon elf man running around and she just shakes her head and goes back to what she's doing. (laughs) You know, Wind Waker overall was fantastic. There's this little spot at the end though, that is kind of a blemish on it though, right? It's like there was this little chunk where clearly somebody decided that the game needed to be longer. And so the end of the game was, was padded out with this fetch quest that was really kind of a drag and just brought the whole thing down. Apparently, the HD remaster of Wind Waker for the Wii U uh, fixes it a little bit, but still, it's a real bummer that it was in there to begin with. I would love for Nintendo also to potentially tweak the ending. It sounds like they may have softened it up a little bit with this remaster. So I want that same I want that same experience on the the Switch because I actually never finished this game. That last little segment was so frustrating and it was all like timing and you had to run around. So I actually never got to bring this game to completion. I'm probably within a few hours of finishing. Probably less than that if you got to the uh the slog at the end. You probably have less than than a few hours. Um, 
Then we move on to the Wii games. In 2006, we have Twilight Princess that came out on both the GameCube and the Wii. And I bought it for the Wii because there was actually additional content. But overall, I remember thinking at the time, man, I I should have just gotten this for GameCube because it clearly was a GameCube game that had the Wii waggle, the the motion controls tacked onto it, flailing the, the Wii remote around instead of just pressing a button was something I was never a fan of. It was a good looking game. And while it was cool to see yet another artistic visual take on the series, I was bummed that they moved away from the cartoony Wind Waker art style. A few years later, we got the Wii exclusive Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword in 2011, which I actually uh, didn't play. It's the only console Zelda release that I Never got around to. Did you play that one? Yes, I did like it a lot, but I will tell you that I kind of lost steam about probably about halfway through and I never finished it. I had a pretty similar experience with Twilight Princess where I kind of ran out of gas on it, but I ended up finishing it. And the fact that it felt like a little bit of a chore to get through is probably why I skipped Skyward Sword altogether. And the fact that I wasn't really excited to play it really, it bummed me out. I was like, am I... Just kind of done with Zelda? Is this it? It was sad. Right. It was like, are we outgrowing this? Are we just, you know, 40 plus year old men who are not going to find the same joys that we did when we were a kid? And that really brings us to the final countdown. If The Wind Waker was my third favorite Zelda game and my second favorite Zelda game was the original Legend of Zelda, that brings us to number one on my top three list, which was Breath of the Wild on the Switch which launched in 2017. It was a launch title. Now it had actually come out for the Wii U simultaneously or shortly before then, but it was the first game I played on the Switch and it is one of the best games of all time, period. And in my opinion, the best Zelda game, period. What do you think? If I had to take a guess at the number of hours I put into this game, I'd have to say 200 at least. At least 200 hours, absolutely. It's just a, a masterpiece. Once again, Nintendo upped the ante for building a world with this game. And for the first time, we got a truly open world in a Zelda. Anywhere you could see, you could go. Any mountain you came across, you could climb, which was a wonderful mechanic. Um, except, of course, when it was raining in the game, which seemed to be every single time <laughs> I needed to make a big climb. This game was a huge shift in the Zelda formula in a few really big ways other than the open world. First, uh, the game does away with the traditional long sort of themed dungeons that you need a newly acquired ability or item to access. Breath of the Wild gives you all of your abilities, your gadgets at the outset of the game and then gives you opportunities to figure out new ways to use them. Um, As for the dungeons, they've been replaced with a ton of, I think there was over a hundred smaller shrines spread throughout the world for you to discover. And each one is a puzzle and so many of them are just so brilliant. You're using magnetism, you're freezing time, using physics to throw stuff and move stuff, sometimes with motion control that actually works really well. And it's not overdone, um, and it just works so much better than the tacked-on, shoehorned motion control I mentioned earlier in the in the Wii version of Twilight Princess. And while there are some repeated ideas in these shrines, the variety of puzzles uh, to figure out and things to do is is really just so impressive. 
It really is. The physics, all the hacks that, I mean, they still are coming out. People find ways to levitate and mix and match things to fly. I mean, it's just completely deep and stable, right? I mean, just the stability of the world and the game. The fact that you could let people climb all over everything and still somehow be clever enough to make sure they can't get into trouble it really is the next level. And because of that, it really, despite its flaws, it it remains one of the most important video games I've ever played. In terms of flaws, really the only big problem I had with it uh, was the fact that your weapons are just constantly breaking and have to be replaced. I'm not, uh, it's not a big deal, as big of a deal later in the game when you get the master sword, but still, and I, I still I, don't love that choice. Like I, I stand behind it, but I don't love it. And I still love this game despite some of the choices they made. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I get why they did it. It's part of the whole sort of wilderness survival vibe that the game has, but it's just not fun, you know? And even in a game that, that shakes things up as much as this one did to me, that felt like the most un Zelda thing about it. The other changes they made to the formula were, they were fun this time around, but I, I personally hope that the next one and uh, the next game we get to settle back into a little more of the traditional system of big dungeons, great memorable boss fights, which is definitely a series staple that I, I missed this time around. And I think you can totally blend those two styles, keep it an open world and make it all work. I'm hoping that's what we get to see with the next game or maybe even in the sequel to this one, which I just I cannot wait for. Which brings us up to date with the Legend of Zelda series and really leaves us with excitement for the sequel, which we had a little tiny teaser trailer about a year ago now, if I'm not mistaken, talking about Breath of the Wild 2. So we cannot wait to see what Nintendo does next, where they're going to take this beloved series, and we would love to hear from you. So check us out on Facebook at McQuaid Arcade, or on various other forms of social media, email, and whatever have you. You can even use smoke signals or telegraphs, I believe. We have all of that set up here in the home office. Uh, And on that note, we bid you adieu and remind you to stay limber.